Uh, this morning, we are diving into, uh, not on purpose when we plan this, but a passage all centered around a meal and a dinner together as well. And so we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 14 this morning and talking about, uh, I have titled this, How to Party Right. And so there are wrong ways to party. Most of us probably already understand that and may have experienced that. We're going to talk about, as Jesus teaches us, how to party the correct way. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 14, specifically verses 7 through 14. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. There are Bibles under every other chair if you want to grab it and read along with me. It's also on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 14. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host. He said, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we pray over your word as it is shared this morning. May you open our hearts, our minds, and our lives to be corrected, guided, and encouraged by you. May we learn and grow, and may we receive what you have for us today through your word. In your name, amen. As we talk about those um, suffering and struggling, I want to share actually the other side, and this is part of the juxtaposition Jesus is giving us in the passage. I want to share one of my uh, favorite experiences communally and as a meal, and it wasn't just one dinner, it was an entire three-day experience. It was about eight years ago, one of my best friends got married, and he was also my roommate for years, and his wife was from Santa Cruz, California, and the wedding was literally on the Santa Cruz boardwalk in California, and he had rented out a house for a bunch of his close friends and the wedding party, and he had said, would you like to come? And I said, in a house that's already paid for in Santa Cruz, California, I am there. I'd never been to Northern California before. Those three days, him and his wife, uh, his fiance at the time, spent every moment of strategy around making their family and friends feel like a community and honoring us and, and bringing us together and treating us well and creating situations where we got to know each other and would grow in our relationship with the people that they cared about. Distinctly, and the only wedding I've ever been to, and I'm 36, so I've been to a lot of weddings, they had at the rehearsal dinner a roast of the bride and groom. I've still never, before that or after that, have I been to a wedding where the bride and groom were that brave. Um, but for about an hour, their friends and family would get up and just roast the bride and the groom. And I didn't know very many people. I really only knew my friend and his, his wife and a couple of our other friends. And I didn't know his extended family or anyone else. 
And about 45 minutes in, his sister leaned to me and said, you've lived with him for seven years and you speak professionally every week. Can you get up there and just say something? And I was like, Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, got it. And maybe the best crowd I've ever spoken to was, you know, at 11 o'clock at a rehearsal dinner as I roasted one of my best friends and my roommate just sharing about his eccentricities. After that moment was literally like an hour of every single person in the room felt like family. I shared stories with cousins of his I had never heard before. They shared stories with us. We enjoyed spending till the we got worn out and the restaurant closed and we all tiredly went back to our rooms. To see them take a moment of honor for each of them, their own wedding, and leverage their wedding to honor and care for and celebrate all of the people in their lives who meant a lot to them. It became one of the most distinct moments in my memory. This isn't even in my notes, but it's one of my favorite stories from it. The, re- the wedding happens, we're at the... Uh, reception and all of a sudden this weird like terrible beach boys song comes on and everybody goes nuts and they all run to the dance floor and everybody's dancing and there's this older guy in his 80s in the middle dancing and everybody's chanting his name and I'm like what the heck is happening it's like an off-brand beach boys song everybody is going crazy this older guy's dancing in the middle and I leaned over to one of uh, my friend's cousins and said what is happening? Go, oh, that's Uncle Ricky. This is his song. It was a brief hit in the 60s. I said, this is just, again, another reminder of this wedding that is constantly celebrating everybody who came out to be a part of it. When we see Jesus in Luke, particularly in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is someone repeatedly at dinner, repeatedly celebrating and serving others, repeatedly using a celebratory feast as a metaphor for the kingdom of God. As many scholars say, in Luke, particularly in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is most often either on his way to a dinner, at a dinner, or on his way from a dinner. He's constantly eating and celebrating with the people in his life, whether it's 529, 736, 1137, 734, 15, 1 and 2. Repeatedly throughout Luke, Jesus is leaning back at a dinner party, celebrating those he's eating with. This passage, and it is long in chapter 14, it begins with Jesus healing a man with swollen limbs. What it might be, dropsy or, or edema, they say maybe in the modern setting this man had. He heals him and it creates a weird tone for this dinner because it's also the Sabbath and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, not do any work at all in their culture. And Jesus healing someone, while we may consider that crazy, they consider that work. You're doing work, praying over and healing this man. Secondly, this is a dinner not with a bunch of his disciples. This is a dinner with Pharisees that invited Jesus to their dinner table. These are the people Jesus is normally arguing with or antagonizing in his teaching. So he's at the home of a Pharisee. He's already violated their their religious customs by healing this man. And then he, in a real Jesus move, just kind of sits back and teaches eating an apple slowly, teaching around the room, making observations. Luke 14 is a series of Jesus' observations while leaning back at dinner. 
after the main meal has been done and they've eaten their bread and their fish and maybe some goat and hummus and now it's coffee and tea time and Jesus is just leaning back, looking around the room, teaching. It even finishes with one of Jesus' most famous sayings where he talks about his followers being salt. But if salt loses its saltiness, what's it good for but to be thrown away? All of this is encapsulated in this one dinner celebration. It's a tense dinner, but Jesus is using it to teach, making observations. Throughout it, he is reminding us that Jesus' primary observation, primary metaphor for the kingdom of God is a celebratory dinner feast. Most often, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a dinner. The kingdom of God is like a wedding. The kingdom of God is like a feast at harvest. The kingdom of God is where there is plenty, where it's a huge table, and everybody is welcomed too. And then he makes observations about what's happening. And I want to draw us to the main point of this passage, other than partying well, is to use our status at the party to celebrate others. Use the status of what we have. Use the blessings and privilege of what we've been given, not to leverage for our own advancement, but to use to celebrate and lift up others. Already, at the beginning of the passage, Jesus has used his status to elevate this poor man suffering with this affliction and this disease. Jesus knows it's going to make the dinner awkward, he knows it's probably going to make his status of being welcome at the home in question. And yet anyway, he uses his status as the teacher being honored as a healer to heal this man and put himself in an awkward position. Jesus is the invited guest. So we don't know who the person being honored is. It might be Jesus as the teacher welcomed here. It may be the host of the party. But what Jesus observes is everybody at the dinner table is kind of jockeying this weird sort of passive-aggressive adult game of musical chairs trying to sit closest to the guest of honor. That sort of thing where everybody's kind of talking and they're being really casual, but they're subtly moving themselves towards the best seat at the table, maybe making observations pulling the chair out that's next to the host, and then someone else is also, oh, but let me get you a drink, and takes the chair from them, trying to put themselves into the best places of honor. And Jesus sees this game they're playing and makes this observation. His base observation is brilliant and cuts through. He says, how do you know you're the most important person here? And wouldn't it be embarrassing if you thought you were, and then publicly you had to be reminded that others are more important In Jesus' time, people with more value are treated better than those with less perceived value. Not a lot has changed. But there are formal status in his culture. In Roman culture, quid pro quo is incredibly important. You do something for someone else, they are obligated to return that favor. There is a debt to be paid. And so if I helped someone out with their dinner, I helped someone out with their child and taught them something, or someone was in need and I gave them a ride somewhere or helped out in their garden, you would keep a record of that to use it to leverage your benefit later on. So people would jockey to do nice things for really important people because then I could leverage it for more important paybacks down the road. He's also in a Jewish culture. 
where honor is incredibly important, honor and shame. I must honor the person who's hosting this. It's really important that I honor my parents, the grandparents, the oldest ones in the room. They get honor and we humble ourselves before them. All of this comes down to a very clear set of rankings in Jesus' Jewish and Roman culture. Who were important, who weren't important. You could go to a dinner and literally see it played out on a gradient at the dinner table. The most important people by the honored guest, the least important people at the very end, and the very least important people serving all of those at the table. We see this happen in Jesus' teachings. James and John literally ask Jesus for a version of this in the kingdom of God to come. Actually, they don't. They ask their mom to ask Jesus to give them this status in the kingdom. Jesus, when we're at this feast you keep talking about, can we sit at your left and your right? Not just for one dinner, but for all eternity, can we have the most honored place? Boy, the guts to ask that request, but they do. They see the status of how it's playing out, and they want it in eternity themselves. In that passage in Mark 10, 37, where they ask it, Jesus says, that position of honor is not mine to give. He says, it's not mine to give out. But in this passage, he has a different response. He says, don't jockey for honor at the party, because most often, we are less important than we think that we are to people around us. And you don't want to make the mistake of honoring yourself and then being humbled. Rather, humble yourself and give others the opportunity to honor you. He's actually paraphrasing an Old Testament passage from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 and 7. The author of Proverbs says, Don't demand an audience with the king or push for a place among the great. It's better to wait for an invitation to the head of the table than to be sent away in public disgrace. Second part of the story is not just the jockeying at the table, but Jesus also observing everybody here, the honored host, has something to gain from. Everybody here is so that he can leverage this down the road. Even me, Jesus, because I'm an important teacher and people respect me. He's bringing all of these important people together with the knowledge that he has something to gain by hosting us here. He basically says in the second part of the passage, you're only inviting people that you can get something from and you're inviting the wrong people. With your privilege, with your wealth, with the abundance of your table, you should be hosting all of those with less, all of those who can't pay you back, all of those in deep need. You should be calling to the abundance of your table. We don't need the abundance of your table. There are those who do need it, and yet because you perceive that you have nothing to gain from them, you don't invite them into your home. You're trying to make yourself look good with important people while ignoring the ones who should enjoy your hospitality. You're using your social status to increase your social status, using friends to make more friends, using influence to gain more attention. He says in the kingdom of God, we use our status at the party, our status at the dinner table to celebrate others. We use the privilege and wealth we've been given to feed others. We use the honor we have received to honor those with seemingly little value. 
The problem, I think, in our culture today, if I can point to a difference from Jesus' time, is that we leverage the idea of perceptively being good people. We've monetized and we've weaponized being good and kind. You can see it when whatever social status issue comes up, we have to discover all the good things every corporation is doing and adhering to that issue. There's a comedian did this about a year ago and talked about, I don't need to know Oreo's status on racism in America. I don't need to know AMC's status for the poor suffering through Ukraine. We are leveraging the idea of being good people in order to gain more status and acclaim on ourselves. What can I get from this person or this situation? Uh, famously, actually, someone I used to follow on Twitter, uh, a CEO by the name of Dan Price out in Seattle, who became famous for his social media profile that he was always advocating for the little man and for the vulnerable people. He was one of those CEOs that kept saying CEOs should not take big salaries. Their employees should get higher benefits, higher income, higher salaries, calling out others. And he did this for about 10 years, gained a huge social media following only in the last year to find out he was leveraging all of his social media fame to take advantage of women around the country who would DM him, oh, you're doing such good. And you're like, I am doing such good. Do you want to come back to my place? Leveraging his perception of being a good person for his own private benefit and acclaim. The reciprocity of social media summed up in one common phrase, follow for follow. You follow me, I follow you. You post on my birthday, I post on your birthday. I friend those who will friend me back and give value and importance to who I am. In business, we call this the quid pro quo, one hand washing another. I do you a business favor, you do me one back. The dinner table becoming a strategic place for leveraging our social relationships that we have over for dinner, the strategic relationships that we want to grow from, that we want to learn from, that we want to gain from. I know that they're an incredible chef and cook, so I'll have them over, so they'll have me over their place, and I can experience it myself. Or in marriage, we see it summed up in the idea of record-keeping itself. I did you a favor, I expect a favor back. I gave you a really beautiful gift. My birthday is coming up very soon. I keep records of all the places I have served you so that I can ask you to serve me down the road. To this mentality, not only is Jesus teaching us in Luke 14, but we can see it as well in Matthew 16, 27. He says quite boldly, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul in the process. Asking the question, how am I using the abundant blessings, the seemingly unlimited dinner tables we in modern New Jersey America get invited to? We have so much. We have been blessed with so much. God has given us so much. How are we and how can we leverage it to lift up those who have less? And not just about food, but about our actual status as people. How can I take others' love and affection for me and use it to celebrate others in need of loving affection themselves? 
How can I turn a funny story, an anecdote, and a table around to honor someone else at a table? How can I take my wedding and make it three days of honoring and lifting up every person who is of value to me in my life? It's easy to think about this in terms of work and finances. There's categories for this and it's talked about. But what Jesus is saying is leveraging your human relationships and your social capital in order to love and honor others. We see Jesus kind of give us the antidote for it in the passage itself. In Luke 14, verse 10, he begins it. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humble. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. When you put on a luncheon, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back. That will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. It's easy to take this passage from Jesus and just think that it's browbeating of just give more, serve more, be more humble, posture yourself. But all of these are activities without a heart posture. And if you've ever tried to change your activities without a change of your heart, you know it can be really exhausting. I can maybe do it for a couple days. I can do it for maybe a few weeks. Eventually, if I'm honoring people above myself in my own human capacity, I either run out of steam or I begin to become bitter. I become Martha at the dinner table. No one else is helping. I'm the one, sir. I'm taking the lowest table and everyone else is moving towards the honored guest. I can't keep doing this. And I imagine Jesus sitting at this dinner table, looking around at everyone jockeying for position and thinking to himself, each one of these people is already honored and valued and cared for so intimately and so completely. I breathe the breath of life into them. I knit them together carefully in their mother's womb. I myself, as the creator of the universe, as the image bearer of every person on this earth, they don't even realize, regardless of where they are at the table, they are my honored guest. I love them and care for them and see value in them so much so that that I put on flesh and came to this earth. They are so important to me that I will take on all of their shame and all of their sin and I will put it on my own shoulders on the cross and I will die in their place in order to conquer death so they could live forever in a world rid of sin and shame. They don't even realize that what they're fighting for are scraps on a table when I have already given them the full banquet feast of my love and affection. And that the word of Jesus is when you realize how loved and valued you are by the one who has created you, how loved and valued you are in Christ Jesus, you don't need to argue over where you sit at the table because you know your status in eternity is already written forever. So I could sit and go, yeah, you take the place of honor. Oh, Carol, you had a really funny story. Tell your funny story. 
Oh, oh, Rick just got a promotion at work. Can we all celebrate how well he's doing at his job? Kevin just graduated, and he graduated magna cum laude. Can we celebrate this? And I can fade into the background because I know Christ Jesus has already lifted me up to his status. In fact, there's a really good Old Testament story that illustrates this factor. More obscure story about a man named Mephibosheth from 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to grab three little passages in this chapter. Verse 1, verses 4 through 8, and then verses 11 through 13. And we're going to see this story of an Old Testament figure who had very little value in his culture, but because of who his father was... He receives a place of honor at the table. One day, David, this is David, the king of Israel, asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Saul, the king before him. Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan, David's best friend. He says, someone says, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Uh, the nurse taking care of him as a child dropped him, and so he was crippled his whole life. He says, where is he? King David asked. And Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him to Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant, Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show you kindness because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Mephibosheth, while that name is really hard to say and I had to read it five times, Mephibosheth is someone who should not be honored in their culture. Not only was he someone who was physically disabled, and so he couldn't contribute anything physically into the kingdom, he was also the grandson of David's enemy who tried to kill him, Saul. In fact, when David took over, they eliminated nearly every person from Saul's family, not just out of bitter rivalry, but you do that so they can't come back and reclaim the throne, eliminating all of them. But Mephibosheth's father had shown kindness to David. And so when David was given a position of power, he showed kindness to Mephibosheth. And I love the story because none of this at all has to do with Mephibosheth. What he's earned, what he's done, who he is, simply the fact of who his father was. This is what Christ calls us to the table for. He says, you come to the table unashamed. You come to the table as my honored guest, not because of what you deserve and what you have worked for and what you have earned for, but because of my unmerited grace and favor to you. 
And I value you, not because of what you've done and how you've jockeyed your way to the front of the table, but I value you because I am a God of love and grace and mercy. And I have poured out my love for you on the cross. And so, in the kingdom of God, as Jesus is teaching it, The kingdom of God is not a place where each of us fights one another to earn greater status and honor. It is not a place where the resources run out. Not a place with a finite amount of chairs and a finite amount of resources and a finite amount of honor. It is a place with unlimited honor and unlimited love and unlimited grace. Christ says, you keep your mind set on that what I have promised you in eternity, the value I am speaking to you. And then in your life here on earth, in Pennington, in Hopewell, Mercer County, in the United States and in this world today, every table you see yourself at, every moment of honor, every party you're a part of, every dinner you go to, you come into that dinner already full, already full of the value I have shown to you. As Christ Jesus, your King, your Lord, who loves you and has invited you to my table. And so when you're at your neighbor's table, when you're at your brother's table, when you're at your co-worker's table, he said, make your main objective at that table, celebrating and loving every other person there. Whether they can give you anything or not. Honor them and celebrate them and love them and remind them of the love I have given to them by being my image bearers. The New Testament authors encourage us and write it to us in this way. I have chosen three different New Testament authors in order to make the point. In James chapter 3 verse 13, James, the half-brother of Jesus and one of the early church leaders says, if you are wise and you understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Prove that Christ is living in your life. Prove that you understand how valued you are. Prove that his love has been poured out on you by not jockeying for attention and wealth and acclaim. Prove it by living humbly and honoring others. As Paul writes to the Philippian church, Philippians 2 verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. He goes on to say, the story of Jesus stepping down out of heaven. That we are called to be selfless people, working to celebrate others, thinking of those in our lives, those in our church, those in our community as better and more important than we ourselves are. As Paul says in a later passage, of sinners, I am the worst. And to see others with honor. And lastly, As the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And don't forget to do good and share with those in need. 
These are the sacrifices that please God. Let us offer, not in our own strength, not of our own sheer will or a desire to be good people, but let us, through the example of Christ Jesus, who gave up heaven to live among us, who died in our place and has given us unmerited love and value, let us live from that strength and example to give to others and serve and care and humble ourselves. I want to give two responses as we close out this morning. Two ways that you can pray in response. One of them being coming into the table. I'm acutely aware. Um, I like to think of myself as a funny person. Um, others have said it about me. And when I'm at a party, there is a gut reaction for me of, I need to make people laugh. I need to make people laugh. I need to make people laugh. That's my value here. That's how I know that I have value. I can distinctly remember it. In seventh grade at a middle school party, they were making prank phone calls. And someone was like, Brian, did you prank phone call this guy. And I was like, never done it before, but give me that phone. And I brought the house down. It was the, I became famous in middle school as the guy who's really good at prank phone calls. And I remember in that moment saying, oh, my worth and my social capital comes from the fact that I'm funny. So I need to keep being funny at regardless of the cost of others. I need to, at every party, I need to make people laugh. That gives my life meaning. It gives me status in my social circles. I don't know what it is for you has become your thing. I need to always be serving. I have to impress with how clean my house is. I need to impress with how quickly I'm excelling in my work and my career and my finances. They see how good a student I am. They see how witty I am. That Christ Jesus is telling each of us, lay it down. That's great. That's a part of you that I love and cherish about you. But it's not what gives you value. What gives you value is the fact that I made you and I made you who you are and I gave my life for you that I could know you in eternity. And you don't need to impress and work for status. You are already valued. As the team comes up and leads in song and prayer at the end of service, I want to encourage you just to pray through that. If you need to be reminded of the value that you have in Christ Jesus, of the kingdom of God, dinner feast that you are already invited to, that you are already honored at, like Mephibosheth, you are invited to that table because of what your heavenly Father has done, and you need to be reminded of that. I give you a challenge this morning just to receive that, to open up and ask God, I need, I'm feeling insecure. Secure me in your love and value. You could take a place around the altar and pray, and we would love to pray over each other. You could pray where you are. And second, I want to give you a challenge that if you feel like you've been living your life opportunistically and the idea of wasting time, wasting situations on people that you can't gain anything from is a struggle for you, where you can't think of the last time you lived your life in that way, to invite the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, to see the people around you who need 
that love and affection from you who need to be celebrated but cannot celebrate you back and ask God to lead you in that grace. If you'll stand with me, if you can, all over the room. I want to give you an opportunity today as well. If you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you don't know what that relationship with Christ looks like, maybe it's been a long time or never, and you want to this morning say, I want to receive that relationship. I want to be at that table with God. I want to know that my eternity is secure. I want to receive that value from God this morning. I want to give you a chance just to pray that prayer with me. If you are a follower of Jesus, I encourage you just to recommit into that this morning. If you'll pray this with me. In this moment, Jesus, I want to know you and have a relationship with you. I want to sit at that dinner table with you for eternity to be with you in your kingdom, to know you and be loved by you. That Jesus, I believe you were God and man and you came to this earth and you lived as we live. You lived a perfect life and you died on the cross for my sin, for my shame, that you died in my place. You were buried in the ground and on the third day, you rose from the grave, conquering death, that we all may have eternal life through you, Christ Jesus. You gave your life for me. Today, in this moment, I commit my life to follow you. Will you come in to me and commune with me that I may follow you all the days of my life? In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. If you prayed that for the first time today, we would love to connect with you, pray with you, celebrate that journey that Christ has you on. But we want to take these next moments, pray over the value we have in Christ Jesus, and that our eyes would be open to those who need to be celebrated by us. The altar space is open if you want to take a step out and just pray and seek God this morning. Or if you want to pray where you are, we're going to respond in song for the next few minutes.